Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur on the run. <laughs> and we are here continuing our journey into 1988 version of Robert Ludlum's classic, The Born Identity. And we have a very special guest joining us. Yes, we are joined by primetime Emmy winning director Roger Young, who was responsible for helming the 1988 Born Identity miniseries. Indeed. It's a story that's never quite been told, funnily enough. It's it's strange that no one's really done the deep dive onto the first adaptation of this story, but we're here to break it all to you. So without further ado, Cam, roll the interview. And joining us now on the show, he is a director, he is a writer, he is a producer, he is a recipient of a Prime Time Emmy for Outstanding Directing in a Drama Series. It is Mr. Roger Young. Hello, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Nice to meet you. It's a pleasure to have you here. We're looking forward to talking about the Bourne identity with you and sort of filling in some of the gaps in the puzzle that is this uh, TV movie adaptation of the classic Robert Ludlum book. But I think before we get there, the first question we have for basically everyone on the show, what got you into filmmaking in the first place? What inspired you to become a filmmaker? Uh, I went to the University of Illinois um... I'm from Illinois um, in journalism and they started a, back then there was no cinema schools or, you know, people to teach you how to direct or anything like that. Uh, but there was this one guy who was sort of had uh, a passion to try to do that. And uh, he was a professor. And so he started a Friday evening um we we actually put on a show that went on the PBS station uh at that time every friday and i found out i could direct you know it was sort of it sort of came uh and when i graduated i went to indianapolis and uh produced and directed shows there in a in the nbc station uh i did the indianapolis 500 time trials and i did the state basketball championship uh you know everything that they had and from there i moved to chicago and started with uh, foot conan building which is an advertising agency and was a producer there for a year and then got hired to direct with a local studio that was making commercials in chicago and then another local studio and then i started my own company and then a friend of mine who had been in chicago uh, doing similar to what I was doing, had moved to L.A., and he came back one Christmas, and we both went out and got drunk together, and he said, uh, you got to come out, you got to come out, you would do great, you got to come out. So uh, having my own business, I had quite a bit of money already in the bank, and so I thought, well, you know, I'll give it a shot. So I kept the business going, but I went out to L.A., and it took me about three months to get a job as an associate producer on a movie of the week, uh, because the writer told me, uh, you know, they bought the picture, but I don't know anything about how to produce it. Can you do that? And I said, sure, it's just like a long commercial. Um, so he paid me $4,000 for six months work. Um, and that got me a job as a social producer. I'm sorry this is going so long. Probably no, no, got me go for it. as the social producer on a series called Lou Grant. Yeah. Uh, with Ed Asner and they they 
the job that they gave me was overseeing the editing and also hiring new directors. So I got to look at an awful lot of work that other directors were doing. And I also got to be on the stage all the time so I could see directors working. Uh, and that became a year of learning how to direct. And the second year they gave me a shot. I won an Emmy and that it took off from there. They say the best way to learn is sort of, you know, in the midst of it, the way to learn a language is to go to the country and, and practice there. You learn directing by basically being around directors. That's the perfect way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And what I would do, I met a guy named John Badham, who was a director, and he had been an associate producer at, at Universal before he started uh, shooting. And he told me that what he did was he played dead director. He would pretend that the director died overnight and that they said to him john you got to do today's work so he would prepare himself as if he had to do that mm -hmm. and i thought that's brilliant and so i started doing that so i would take the scripts from tomorrow and figure out how i would shoot them and then i would go in and watch the real guy shoot them and you know i would either feel oh i see he did that better than i would have done that he did this and etc or i would also think oh i could have done that much better i would have done this this you know and that was a that was my university really i did a year of that. did you have any like filmmaking influences around this time as you're kind of going down this rabbit hole are you looking at you know going to the movies and observing direction was there anyone that stood out to you yeah david lean i um i saw lawrence of arabia i thought it was the greatest picture i'd ever seen uh and I went to see it. I've seen it like 30 times now, you know. Uh, and while I was in school and while this early directing thing was happening, uh, there was a on campus or just off campus, rather, there was a theater that ran a lot of foreign movies and not just the, you know, the silly movies from that period. Uh, so I, I really went to see them a lot and I learned a lot watching what those guys were doing. And, you know, cause you, you see it once for the story, you see it after that for how they shot it. Mm. Uh, and that became uh, a real, it, it was obvious to me that I had some kind of talent for that. Mm -hmm. Cause I could watch and see what they were doing and know how they did it. And, you know, what I had to learn was what the lenses did and what the different lenses did to different faces and uh, all of that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, uh, I met David Lean once. Oh, really? Late, later on, I was at Shepherdin uh, editing something. I don't remember which picture it was. And I was having uh, there you have lunch in a, in a sort of lunch room even the executives etc uh and sitting at the table was his assistant editor and he was there shoot uh, editing something and i said and he came in one day and i said that's david lean and she said yeah i work for him i said oh god i'd love to meet him she says well okay you should you know he's right over there just go say hi i said i can't just walk up to david <laughs> lean and say hi you know? And that happened like four days in a row. And on the fourth day or whatever it was, she said to me, you know, if you want to meet him, you better go because he's leaving to uh, scout 
and he won't be back for two months. At that moment, he got up to, to leave. And so I ran in front of him and opened the door to him. And he said, will you get out of the way? <laughs> that was all I had with David Lean. That makes for the best story, though. It's kind of like the uh, Spielberg, John Ford story. It's like they're more fun when they're kind of punchy yeah. and kind of outside of what you expect. You know, it's not the inspirational words kind of moment. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. No, he was uh, he was in a hurry. <laughs> and I was I was taking a look through the work you did in sort of in TV movies and things like that, and I noticed a lack of espionage and, and sort of spy stories and we're going to talk about one in a minute but i just wanted to ask you as sort of to preface that is in terms of you going to see pictures and, and getting to grips of directing did you have any love for spy cinema at all any spy films you were sort of gravitated to even when you were younger perhaps not really um no i think when i started to get really fascinated by that was uh, james bond and uh you know and what they then did with the born pictures mm -hmm. long after i had anything to do with them you know so um i can't in response to your question i can't even remember one that i might have seen early on um no i was i was just interested in stories and in you know characters mm. it's 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 actually perhaps sometimes perfect as well because you know sometimes you have fans will come in and do work on something someone will really love a piece of work or a genre and then work in that genre and it may not be the best thing they could do they may think about it too much because they love it too much so you're coming into mm -hmm. a born story a spy story more or less fresh which is is a good way of doing it and speaking of born i think the question is and to lead us in how did you get connected with the born identity how did that come to you uh alan shane um asked me to come meet him and uh he wanted to offer me this miniseries and i uh, told me it was going to be shot in uh, zurich and paris and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and why would i say no <laughs> you know uh i loved the idea of shooting outside the united states it was great and richard chamberlain was a big star at that time as was jacqueline so uh no it was it was a no-brainer did you read the book in preparation? Like, were you familiar with? You did, okay. Yeah, I did not talk to Ludlam uh, until afterwards. Mm. Uh, he called me at home one night uh, after the picture. I don't know. I don't remember if it had been on the air already or if they had sent him a disc or something. Uh, but he loved what we did, and I think mostly because we pretty much stick to the stuck to the book. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't go too far away. I mean, uh, what they did after us really didn't have much relationship to the book. Uh, and so we tried to, Carol Sobieski, who I also didn't ever meet. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, no, we talked, but I didn't. She's from Canada, and I think she didn't come down. Um, and and that was one of the things that I really wanted to do. I wanted to stay faithful to the book because the book was such a big seller, and it seemed to me that people uh, would get angry if you know you changed it too much. However, I got to tell you, if I were doing it today, uh, and I watched it the other day, 
because it had been a long time since I had seen it. Um, I think I would try to change the character somewhat in that, for instance, with Bourne, making him not so innocent at the beginning so that maybe he really is Carlos Mm. and just doesn't know it yet, you know? And for instance, let's say when the guy recognizes them on the streets and in that tunnel kind of place uh, in Paris or outside of Paris, um, I would have him just be, just kick the shit out of that guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he was so, he'd be so good at fighting and he was actually enjoying it. Yeah. Uh, you know, different from the way we stage it because we stage it the way it is in the book. Uh, so that you are as the viewer, because simply, simply because this was the first time they did this, we did this, you know, you don't know him. The other, the other guys after me, they already know who the character was. So they really had to change it, I think. Uh, and it would also be interesting for her, I think, to not be really sure, is he a killer or not? Mm-hmm. Not fall in love so fast. Right. Uh, and the doctor, for instance, I would, I would make him very tempted by this bank numbers that he has in his possession now. Maybe even calls the bank to find out if it's real, you know. Uh, and we're not sure if he's going to give that to Richard or not, you know, before he leaves. And one of the critiques of the book, and you're sort of highlighting it there, is is there's a lot of coincidence, especially like he gets picked up by this doctor who basically just saves him without really asking for anything in return. And then he bumps into Jacqueline Smith's Marie, or Marie, and that all just sort of falls in his lap more or less as well. And he kind of finds his way through. And speaking of like attacking that guy in, in the corridor, because if you think of what the 2002, I think it was, mm-hmm. Matt Damon film did, they have, I think the the French policeman wake him up or the Swiss policeman wake him up and he beats the living daylights out of both of them. And then he sort of snaps out of it and realizes what he's did. I think it's sort of, yeah, like they, they basically took that note without reading it and did that with ah. the film. So yeah, they, they did sort of go that way in the end. Ah, well then I'm stealing. <laughs> <laughs> Technically you did this first, so it's fine. This is, you're the OG. It's all good. And, uh, you actually answered one of my follow-up questions when you sort of said about how you got connected with it, because I was going to ask about casting, but it sounds like it was pitched to you as having Chamberlain and uh, Jacqueline Smith yeah. already signed to the, to the project. Yeah, because at that time, you really had to have stars in it before they would give it a green light. Right. And I, I was curious, just in terms of the difference in this era of film versus TV, and you know, you've worked on motion pictures before this. You did the Michael Keaton film, The Squeeze. But like when you're doing one of these, you know, TV events, what is the kind of the, like the lead up, the development period? Is it like a lot faster paced? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't remember what kind of um, prep we had in this in terms of time. <laughs> but I do know that we went to Europe pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, went to Zurich, et cetera. And I had I picked locations. I um, I remember changing the locations a lot uh, from what they the location guy was showing me into what you know I really wanted to use. Uh, partly because I was told, oh, you know, Trocadero, is that how you say it in Paris? Uh, 
uh, you know, oh, you'd never get that, you know. But I did, you know, so uh, it just was a question of talking to the people who were in charge and, you know, making them feel that we weren't going to blow anything up or whatever. Um, no, and watching the picture, I was proud of the locations. I thought we did a really nice job in, in getting where we shot. It's actually one of the things that we noted down as a, as a really great part of it, too. There's a there's a really great shot. I think Bourne has just had a fight with someone and he's just just had, it's like the Eiffel Tower is framed in the background. It's actually like the same set they use for the most recent John Wick film. They use those same steps. So it's it's still being used, but like it's all perfectly framed. It's wonderful. So they're still using the place you use. And this is, a, as you say, a TV movie compared to like the money John Wick has thrown behind it these days. So, yeah, yeah some yeah. wonderful location work. Yeah, no, there was no CGI there because there was no CGI, mm. you know, yet. Uh, no, those those places were real. And I want to ask if you had any memories of working with cinematographer Tony Pierce Roberts, who has some real spy cred because he had done the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy miniseries as well. I'm just curious if you had any memories there. Yeah, and it's not a particularly good one. Uh, I don't think Tony liked me very much. Oh. Uh, uh, I'm not sure why, um, but partly because I'm sure I don't, you know, I know what I want to do with the camera when I'm there. Uh, I mean, the moment that I see the location and I, I'm not interested in a lot of discussion about it. Mm. I just know where it's going and I know which lens to use and et cetera. So, and I think maybe that didn't sit well with him. You know, a lot of cinematographers want to be involved in the direction in my eyes. And to me, it's that's my job uh, in addition to working with the actors, you know, and that's what makes it fun. And we didn't do a lot about that. He did, I think, do a great job in terms of lighting it. Um, and he's a nice guy, but I just get the got the feeling that he was just standing back waiting for me to die. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you you didn't. It was a, it's a it's a wonderful uh, it's a wonderful piece and I think for the fans of the book I actually much prefer this version to the Matt Damon film. Yeah, for obvious reasons. For sure. Um now one thing I want to talk about, I don't want to get into sort of the, the micro of stuff like budget cuz that stuff is probably lost to time. We won't know exactly how much was spent on it that sort of thing. But it, as as it is a TV movie compared to sort of your you know work in film, I imagine this is a much smaller budget to work with. You're really sort of having to work to get everything right, especially with locations as well. Was it quite a tight production when it comes to money? It always is, <clears throat> but it it really wasn't classified as a TV movie. It was a miniseries because it was four hours, right? So it split up into two nights. Okay, you know. They, they showed it on Monday and Tuesday usually. I, that's, I don't know for sure if that's the case here, but that's what they usually did. Um, <clears throat> and you always had to have a cliffhanger, you know, halfway through it, um, which we did. Uh, so it had a bigger uh, budget than the normal TV movie, which, you know, sometimes was as little as $2 million, you know. Mm. I don't know. I don't remember what it is. I Probably you can look it up, but... Um, but, you know, we stayed in nice hotels and we traveled around Europe, so <laughs> there must have been some money somewhere. I remember uh, Alan Shane, who was an executive at um, Warner Brothers for like 10 years before he did this. Uh, and 
at one point in the shooting, he said to me, I didn't realize how hard this is. This is really difficult, isn't it? I said, you've been working at a studio for 10 years and you don't know how hard it is to make a film? And I said, yeah, that's terrible, isn't it? But yeah, we, you know, there's never enough money ever. Um, doesn't matter how big it is because the, the more money, the bigger it gets. Mm. Um, the the um, squeeze, which I took over for another director that they fired, and I never should have even been on that picture. I'm not funny. And that picture was, you know, that was a comedy, supposedly, mm. uh, which bombed horribly. You know, I did what I knew how to do, but uh, apparently it wasn't very, wasn't good. Um, but we had a lot of money on that picture and we ate it up, you know. And when you are working, you know, at a faster pace, making these types of, you know, TV projects, I'm just curious, like, is there any sequences or elements that were like the biggest challenges to deal with when you are moving at that fast speed? Um. I remember when we got to the truck, no, it was the, I don't remember what the name of that location is in, in Paris. There's a location where there's this big open space uh, in front of, I think you're seeing the Eiffel Tower or something behind it. And it's historic because uh, Hitler came there. Uh, and there are pictures of him standing where we shot, et cetera. And I wanted a great big fat wide shot with the two guys really small running across the horizontally across the uh, frame. And when we got there, the place was full of Japanese tourists mm. uh, who had just gotten off a bus just as we arrived or as we were set up and ready to go. And you know, I I said, you know, this is really trouble because I got to be out of here in 45 minutes. Uh, and this, the scout came to me and he said, don't worry, they'll take one picture, they'll get back on the bus and they'll be gone. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> uh, so I guess that's what Japanese tourists do. But we had that kind of situation where, uh, you know, in Zurich, we have to clear out the traffic and you know get rid of the people and and bring our own people in and those things take a lot of time and you end up having to shoot quite quickly then mm. as far as any particular thing that was a trouble um i can't recall anything off the top of my head that's fair i'm sure there were lots of them <laughs> <laughs> the first picture i did the two-hour picture a television movie uh, called Bitter Harvest. Uh, we had 17 and a half days. Wow. To shoot a two hour movie. <laughs> wow. How is that possible? And I, I remember calling the producer at some point and saying, Look, I, I got to have another day. <clears throat> I, I really, you know, I can't, we can't get it all in the 17 days. And he said, I think you should stay another day, but the crew is going to be coming home on the 17th day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I got it. Well, in many ways, like you are shooting an epic here. It is a over three hour runtime, and I'm sure you do not have anywhere near the amount of time that a filmmaker making a three hour you know, motion picture would get. True. True. Yeah. Completely true. Yeah. I've never had that that kind of time, you know. I've always thought it was uh, kind of funny that people always admired uh, 
Clint Eastwood because he always comes in on time and under budget. But it's Clint Eastwood's company. He makes the budget and he makes the schedule. So of course he comes in on time and under budget. Nothing against Clint Eastwood. No, no, no. Well, we mentioned the cast sort of earlier on, but you know Richard Chamberlain and also Jacqueline Smith. What was it like working with those two? Any sort of stories of the three of you working together on on the film? Very cooperative, no problem at all. Uh, I, I, you know, I think, I think he was too big in his in showing his emotions. I think I should have brought them brought him back more and let it be more subtle. Um, but Richard was used to being on a ser- series, on a television series, and sometimes, you know, that moves in that direction. Um, with a film like this, with the time to open up the character, I think it's better to move a little slower and a little subtler. Um, but none of these actors, uh, you know, there was never a problem at all. Uh, Anthony Quayle is a big member of of uh, Lawrence of Arabia. So I was really thrilled to work with him. And later I got to work with Peter O'Toole on a miniseries. So uh, that would, you know, both of those things were fun. I, I was so taken with Peter O'Toole that the first three days I would say, Mr. O'Toole will start for here and to telling the camera people what I was going to do and stuff. And on the third day he said, uh, Peter, darling, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know you cracked it when you get that. Exactly. Well, it's good to hear that uh, Richard and Jacqueline were, were, were good to work with. And it's uh, it's it's a hard one for an actor to pull off because I think they, they looked a long time to find Matt Damon to do Bourne. So I imagine it was quite the task for Richard to mm. try and pull off to pull off Jason Bourne. It, it's, there's a lot going on under the under the surface with him he's trying to figure a lot of stuff out and to try and show that is probably quite tough in terms of i was going to ask about the expanded cast and you kind of led me in there you said at the start obviously this film was pitched to you as having richard and jacqueline already signed up script was already done basically a complete package did you do any of the casting aside from that though did was there some casting for the film that you were a part of uh i i think i had uh i could say no to who they were suggesting, um, but I don't know that I ever did because I mean, look at these names. You know, they're they're terrific actors, and <clears throat> they were all in that age group that where they you know they're already they've already long ago proven how good they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, because we didn't really didn't have any young people in this besides the two leads, um, the the guy the big tall bad guy that uh i don't even remember the guy's name george lane cooper yeah i should have said no to that but uh everybody else was very good i'm trying to i got a cast list here i'm trying to see if there's anybody i had any problems with i'm sure there wasn't the guy who played carlos i didn't know at all um and he you know he really only had two scenes so mm-hmm. I want to ask about Damholm Elliott, who, you know, at the time of recording this, we're about a week away from a new Indiana Jones movie. And he, of course, is an icon due to Raiders and Last Crusade. And I think he's fantastic in this movie, like creates a whole little world just in like 
what, 20 minutes, half an hour of screen time. Right. I was just curious about the experience of working with him. Uh, the, I just remember the first day going, wow. <laughs> you know, so I didn't, I don't know if I ever even talked to him, you know, I mean, in terms about acting. Yeah. Uh, he was just wonderful in it. And, <clears throat> you know, you just get out of their way when they're good. Right. Yeah. And they always say, like, if you're casting correctly, then your job is easy. Right. It's 90% of it. You know, if you've got that in a good script, you're done. Mm. Unless you're an idiot, unless you're an idiot, you know, <laughs> that's happened before, but, uh, no, the, the cast was great. I, I, we moved right along and that's the other thing, you know, that because they were all proven, there was no, you know, Oh, I don't think I should do it that way or none of that. You know, they just would step in. Where do you want me to stand? Do you want me to move over there? You know, that kind of thing. And we were off and running. Hmm. Otherwise, we wouldn't have it done. We were talking about the location shooting and also the sort of budget and the, the, the schedule, I imagine, was quite quick to turn this around to get it to TV. I mean, do you remember, firstly, do you remember how long you had to film it, edit it, and then it was going to TV at all? No, it's too long ago. I don't remember. That's fair. How long we had. Um I had a great uh, editor, Ben Weissman, who I'd used many times before. And, and so I felt really solid about that. Um, and Alan, you know, his job, as I remember, was casting at Warner Brothers. So um, he knew everybody. Um, I was really thrilled when Robert Ludlum was happy, you know, um, <laughs> Because he he was just full of praise. Um, no, I I don't recall being uh, you know having my throat pulled tight because of the budget. Uh, I was used to shooting fast, mm -hmm. so that didn't that's not a problem for me. I mean, uh, when you you know Spielberg shoots fast too. You know, I mean, it's uh, not that I'm comparing myself to Spielberg, but <laughs> I mean. You can do it, you know, if you know how to do it, you can do it and you can still get quality. So, uh, and Eastwood shoots fast, you know, I mean, there's a lot of guys who can who, who work that way. Mm -hmm. So these people were also used to that, I think. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents, keeping the lights on at Spy Hards HQ ain't cheap. And frankly, nor is feeding the school of attack piranhas. So we need your help. Roger that, Scott. Only at the Spy Hards Patreon can you gain access to exclusive shows like Agents in the Field, which tackles non-spy films starring your favorite spy icons, and The Debrief, where we channel our inner solitaires and predict how the big spy movie news of today will impact tomorrow. So make like a Treadstone agent and activate your Patreon membership at patreon.com slash spyhards today. Cam... Tell the people what we have in our sights this week. Scott, summer may be over, but that doesn't mean it's too late to catch up with all the great Spy Hearts content from the month of August on Patreon. I'm talking about reviews of the original Ocean's Eleven and Mars Attacks and the latest episode of The Debrief, where we broke down the new Gal Gadot thriller, Heart of Stone. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy chinks. Was there any sense when you're shooting this one that you might reteam for an adaptation of the second book? 
there was not and and it was uh such stupidity on my part because when Robert Ledlam called me that night the first thing I should have said was well let's do the next one you know mm -hmm. uh why I, I was too stupid to say to you know suggest that we could have done a whole series of them because I think he would have said yes I mean he was that thrilled so no I don't know why nobody thought of it until how many years later uh and I don't know if to, you know if we should be flattered because they saw it and said oh this is worth making it again or they saw it and said oh they really screwed that up we, let's make it again and do it right I don't know which it was or they didn't see it at all well it's 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 an interesting one because you know famously a lot of the a lot of writers don't like when their stuff is adapted especially with spy films even like Ian Fleming wasn't a particularly big fan with the casting of Sean Connery going all the way right. back to that like they, they tend to have, be very protective of their work so to get that phone call from Robert Ludlum is is quite the stamp and I think regardless of what the filmmakers of the 2002 Matt Damon film thought or saw you got the author so I mean there there, there isn't a higher pinnacle because he created the characters I think you might have had trouble with a sequel because Carlos is is killed in the film mm. whereas in the books he stays throughout I think for a very long time he kind of haunts Jason Bourne Mm -hmm. for a long time but then you could have quite easily invented a new villain not really a problem my question then would be sort of looking back on the project now do you have any sort of other memories or fond memories from the production that we haven't spoken about so far anything else that we haven't mentioned on the set or hearing about it afterwards seeing it on tv i mean do you get asked about this at all this film no wow interesting i don't um and that to me that's a bit surprising although i guess it is you know it's a long time ago and um i don't know if you'd say i mean when you looked at it did you think well it's this kind of old-fashioned no i expected to mm. i went into it uh, with that because i remember that they had this movie at my video store when i was mm -hmm. you know younger and i would see it on the shelf and it always just be i was a teenager and so I would look at it and be like, oh, this looks kind of old-fashioned. Mm -hmm. And so when I sat down to watch it, I really did expect something maybe a little creakier uh, in terms of being this TV miniseries. And I was actually very surprised at how beautiful it often looked, how you know fantastic a lot of the performances were, and how much sort of tension was carried throughout. So no, I would say maybe you might expect that. But in terms of actually revisiting it, no, I was actually quite surprised at the quality of it. Well, that's very kind of you. Um... Yeah, so I don't I don't know why it isn't seen. It you know I, it's not picked up on any of the streamers, and mm. so I I guess maybe Richard is just too long ago. People don't know who he is or who he was. I mean he's still alive, but he's eighty nine years old or something. I think now. Uh, so maybe that's it. I don't know. And Jacqueline also is kind of yesterday's news mm. and me too <laughs> <laughs> well did you get any sort of like response to it when it aired or anything like did you get feedback did it have any you know impact on your career at the time well it was nominated for an Emmy mm -hmm. uh so it stayed alive from from that uh and yeah uh you know my agent got a lot of noise um because I think, you know, it, it's a big picture, you know, for 
the kind of stuff that that was usually being done at that time. Uh, so that just showed that I could handle that. Um, and, uh, you know, outside of the usual friends and people who you never know if they're telling you the truth, people, uh, it was it. I don't know that it was uh, the water cooler favorite, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't remember to tell you the truth. I, I think you're bang on with the, it, the whole the lack of ability to watch it. I think that hinders a lot of things now. It's not on streaming. I had to buy a, a DVD copy. I think that was I. I think there was a a pressing in the early noughties that came out probably around about the time the film. This, that's the yeah, one. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's you know that's no bonus features as far as what my copy has. There's nothing like that. There's no commentary track on mine or anything. So there's, there's no there's no way to rediscover it. And if if you're just discovering right. the Bourne films, there is nowhere else to go. And that's a shame. Right. That's a shame because I, right. I think you know it's a different vibe compared to Matt Damon's films. But I think it's very successful in its own way. And even if you Google, you're not going to get this film. You're going to get the other ones. Yeah. Yeah, or the book. Yeah. And I actually think the differences between the two actually work in favor for both movies because mm. it does not feel like when I, because I wasn't sure, I sat down to, you know, rewatch or to watch this for the first time the other night. And there's always that, oh, is this going to feel like kind of treading over the same ground uh, mm. for three hours? And not at all. Like, I think the two stand apart really well because they are so different. Yeah, I love the new ones. You know, I've watched them probably twice, at least twice, but all of them. So, you know, it's, I, I really like him. So it's easy to follow him around. When you watched the 2002 one for the first time, did you sit there going like, this is not the story I was telling? Like, did it keep pulling you out of the movie? No, uh, I never expected them to, you know, continue in that journey. They never do. Mm. You know, uh, they always feel it's necessary to add more. I don't know of whatever they think is going to grab the audience. So uh, it was pretty obvious to me before I started watching it that it wouldn't wouldn't be that, mm -hmm. and it wasn't. But they, you know, it, they work great. Are they all directed by the same guy? Um, no, not the fourth one. Uh, well, Doug Lyman did the first, and then Paul Greengrass did the second, right, third, and fifth, and then yeah, Tony Gilroy did the fourth. Yeah, but they all have sort of the same visual style as each other. They, the the first one, the the boy identity, really sort of sets the tone for the rest of them. There's no there's no outlier of the five particularly. They all kind of they really all do kind of work together. Well, Greengrass has is a a real stylist. I mean, what he changed things when he when he first came in with his bang 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 editing and you know that that sort of thing. But you're right, he didn't carry it through on on this one. Mm -hmm. I suppose then sort of my final question on, on Bourne, looking back on it, and you revisited it recently for this discussion. Just overall, what are your thoughts on, on what you produced? Are you, are you happy with it? Is there any things you'd change looking back now? No, just what I started w with, you know, in terms of what I might do with the characters and and, and their dark side. Mm -hmm. uh, but in in terms of the way I shot it, no, and the locations, no, and the actors same you know I, I i was pleased with what i saw today not today but when i watched it last week mm -hmm. yeah well i suppose then moving us out and into sort of your 
wider work? What are the questions I wanted to ask? Because you've done a, a lot of feature films, TV miniseries, TV movies. Is there something that you made that you're particularly proud of that you don't think gets the love it should? Yeah, uh, I made two pictures that I think are in that category. Um, one's called Kiss the Sky uh, that you should you should look at. It's it's really an interesting film by a really interesting author. Uh, and the other one's called Gulag. And I'm not sure you can even get that one anymore. David Keith is the star. <clears throat> but it was a tough picture to make. And it was because uh, we shot a lot of it on the glacier up in Norway. Uh, and I was I was proud of the way I directed it. Um, Kiss the Sky is a story of two guys who just get so bored with their lives that they decide to just take off hmm. they're buddies they have wives and they have kids but they just can't take it anymore and uh what happens to them and i just think the script is dynamite and the people who have seen it you know i get emails every now and then saying you know why is why don't more people know about this film it's really good uh we, we when we showed it you know you, you usually show it to get reaction and they fill out these stupid cards and you know tell uh i had one guy walk up to me and he he said uh how do you put it uh oh you've been reading my mail he said <laughs> <laughs> that's how real it was to him this picture so uh yeah those are those are two i'm proud of that have not gotten what they deserve it's interesting looking at, I'm uh, just looking at Gulag now on IMDb, and it's about sort of uh, a guy who was accused of spying for America. So, right. A little spy connection there. I like that. Yeah. The the first 30 minutes of it, you got to sort of get through. And then after that, I think it gets gets quite good. And the uh, the last question we have for you, Roger, and this has been asked to everyone we've ever had on the show. And you maybe queued it up earlier, but we'll see what we get. What is your favorite spy movie of all time? Hmm. I'm trying to narrow it down. I, I love Three Days of the Condor. Great film. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'd have to pick out a, a Bond movie. I don't know which one it would be. Um, maybe it would definitely be with uh, the, the new guy. What's his name? Daniel Craig. Yeah, yeah. No, it would be, I guess, Russia with love with Sean. That got me into that whole feeling, you know. Um, those are the two that come to mind. It's interesting you pick from Russia with love, too, because that's one of the closest to the actual source material. And you have your born identity, which is very close to the source material as well. Right. Yeah. Right. right. I mean, I can't argue with either of those choices. They're on our list of the best spy movies ever made. So they're in good company there i think all that's left to say from us roger is is thank you for your time and thank you for shedding a light on the story of the born identity because this story has never been told well i'm glad that you you've brought it to the forefront for a few minutes <laughs> <laughs> I, I want people to go check out this tv this this tv miniseries i think it's important i think if you're a fan of the born saga as it were you should learn where it came from and this is the best adaptation of the book there it is. So, yeah, Roger, again, thank you for your time today. Okay. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a good day. Thank you. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat 
with Mr. Roger Young. I want to thank Roger once again for taking the time to speak with us about his work on the Born Identity and much, much more. Cam, what did you think? Well, Scott, this filled in a lot of gaps for me because whenever we do these episodes where we review a movie, um, mm-hmm. I will go and do notes on the behind the scenes. Yep. Finding behind the scenes information on the 1988 miniseries Born Identity is very difficult. There's absolutely nothing on the Wikipedia page, and you start Googling around only little morsels of details here or there. So, like, this interview may have been one of our most invaluable in terms of painting the larger picture in terms of how this thing came to be. For sure. And, and yeah, you have to think that the creators of the 2002 Matt Damon version of this story had to have gone back and watched this at some point. And I, I not necessarily spoken to people involved, but you know, studied it and studied how it was adapted and taken notes. So I think this is a, an important sort of touchstone in in uh, treadstone touchstone mm. uh-huh. in the sort of work of Robert Ludlum and being adapted for the screen. It was actually really cool to find out that it had Ludlum's stamp of approval. I'm actually surprised it didn't have more of a second life with the release of mm. you know the 2002 film and then the various sequels. I just wonder how much that is to do with the fact that at that point in time, streaming wasn't a thing. And I do wonder if nowadays, you know, if you have an upcoming Bourne film, they would have been making sure this thing was available so people could watch it as they build anticipation for the new movie. Well, like I mentioned in the interview, like there was a DVD release around the time that the Matt Damon film was brought out. And actually, I didn't mention this in the interview, but it reminded me a lot of when they re-released the Harry Palmer TV movies around the time that Bourne came out with these really horrible artwork that's clearly not Michael Caine running from helicopters. Uh, (laughs) They are quite spectacular. If you can find them online, look at the artwork. It's great. But yeah, that was like the last printing of of that TV movie as well. You can't find those in regular circulation. And it, it feels like this sort of era of storytelling is slowly just being shuffled away. Well, yeah, the idea of the two night miniseries event not really a thing anymore i mean so many of the shows that we watch now are serialized they are you know six to eight episode series it's more like the original format has been adapted into what is just common television now yeah because it feels like it's the same story spread over eight to ten episodes instead of three hours or four hours like you get with the born identity i imagine if this was adapted again i could definitely see this as a a a 10 hour you know 10 part show well there was the treadstone tv show which told a serialized story over a handful of episodes it only i think lasted one season but within the time period of you know the 80s when this was made i like i remember this period i remember watching uh, i would have been in the early 90s or mid 90s the um adaptation of peter benchley's the beast mm-hmm. which you know peter benchley wrote jaws he also wrote a book called beast about a killer uh giant octopus that attacked a of town. Of course he did. Of course he did. <laughs> and maybe it was a squid. I can't remember if it was an octopus or a squid. Might have been a squid. But um, I that was a two-night event. And I remember breathlessly watching each installment. I also owned the DVD, cutting them to, the two parts together. They also did Peter Benchley's Creature about a Nazi experiment merging a human and a shark together. Again, these were two-night events. And for me, they were very exciting. They felt kind of epic 
unto themselves. Mm. And they were different than what you were typically watching on TV, where shows had, you know, 24-episode runs, 22-episode runs. The idea of these kind of epic movies spread over two nights were just really cool. Well, they were they were events television before we had events television. Now we have all these, like... Well, you, you remember, like, the noughties when everyone was watching stuff like 24, and it became, like, water cooler chat. Lost was another one as well that was very much events television. This was the original version of that with these TV movies. That, you know, they felt different to what you were seeing in theaters, and they felt different to what you were watching on television. It was like this middle of the sort of a combination of the two. I don't necessarily think I could sort of point to any myself. I know Star Trek did it a couple of times. Hmm. Star Trek Voyager had the Dark Frontier, I think it was, which was basically a two-hour episode, yep. more or less. Yeah. Uh, I remember that getting a lot of promo when I watched that. And so I've seen similar things, but maybe just sort of spinning off into the discussion with Roger, one thing I found quite fascinating was the fact that there was not a lot of pre-production that he was involved with. He was basically handed a mostly full out, you know, filled out cast and a completed script. Yeah, that was one aspect of this interview that I was really looking for those details going in, which is that you and I have talked to a number of directors who've helmed uh, motion pictures, you know, spy films that we've tackled on the show. The process of a motion picture versus, you know, a TV event like this. And just hearing him break it down, you know, when he joins the project, they have a cast, they've got a crew, and he needs to pull this off in a very limited amount of time with a limited budget to get it on TV. Like, just the difference between the two processes, I was very much uh, anticipating and paid off. I have to imagine that with television, especially around that time, they probably had a release date already built into the, their programming. Like, they knew when this was coming out before it even probably started shooting. So there wasn't really any way they could just sort of say, oh, we need four more weeks in Paris. Mm, yeah. Like, it just... There's no money for it, and there's no time. But you look at, like... Well, I think we mentioned Clint Eastwood, for instance, in this discussion. I'm sure there's a release date for Clint Eastwood's next film, but if he wants to push it back, he absolutely can. Yeah, if Clint says, I'm not ready then the studio goes, when will you be ready? <laughs> How can we make you feel more ready? Mm. Yeah, I think it's maybe a little more applicable to some of these franchise films that exist now, where they hire directors who have maybe one independent film under their belt, and they have a release date, and they'd better hit that release date or else. The mouse will get them. Mm, the mouse or WB or yeah, various other uh, studios overseeing these uh, big franchises. Yeah, um, but what about you, Cam? Something you uh, liked about the chat? I really enjoyed hearing him talk about like the production aspects of this because I don't know about you, and I mentioned it in the interview. Going in, I kind of expected something a little creaky looking, mm -hmm. and that's not what I got. Like the location work in this movie was fantastic, and you know, discovering that the cinematographer had also done Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is one of the most acclaimed television spy stories ever, might be the number one. Yeah was fascinating and while the collaboration was maybe a little thorny the ultimate result of that collaboration i think was really effective i think so too i i think we were all taken aback by just how beautiful especially at certain points this film looked and you know some of the locations they use i wouldn't have been surprised if we saw in other feature films there's one situation i mentioned that is actually there's one location i should say that was that was actually featured in the most recent john wick film 
Yeah. So, and and you have to think this was done on a shoestring budget and probably done very quickly. So the fact that they had, you know, the time to set this up, Roger had the vision to, you know, stage it in a way that would still hold up in, I don't know, almost 40 years. Mm, yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty impressive for, you know, what could have been just a job he did for six months in, in 1987. And also... Uh, this is a you know TV movie with a limited budget, as he said, and it has locations that are really effective. They're beautiful to see on screen. And how many movies do we see that cost two hundred million, three hundred million, where they've just green screened in the background a like you know famous location, and it looks cheap? Like this movie holds up, I think, quite well. I think that just goes to sort of attest to the use of practical. Yeah, effects whenever you can and real sets and real locations oftentimes now it's probably cheaper yeah for sure it's just i i know that production companies like to use digital effects because they can control the environment more mm, yeah yeah we even mentioned the story about the, the japanese tourists almost ruining the shot that's not something you have to worry about when you're working on a set so there it might be a bit cheaper but you can't fault the you know the handiwork in this film. It still looks great now. So I, I'm glad that Roger had the eye for it and he had the right team. For sure. And I also just really enjoyed, unrelated to Bourne, his story about meeting David Lean. That is a fantastic meeting your hero moment. Yeah, getting sort of cussed out by your hero. <laughs> I mean, you and I get cussed out by our heroes all the time, right? And our listeners. Thanks, guys. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Yeah, they say don't meet your heroes. I've had a couple of examples of that myself. I remember once bumping into a writer and sort of comic book maker, Harlan Ellison, science fiction writer, I suppose is probably his best term, and getting cussed out for him for, I think, not having the right sugar, even though I didn't work at Starbucks, which was <laughs> uh, which was a very weird, weird day, I have to say. So, yeah, I'm glad that Roger got the same sort of treatment from the director of Lawrence of Arabia. I, too, have met a number of Star Trek celebs primarily because of our experience at all these various conventions. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, the stories where they're a little prickly or something are way better than the stories where they were just nice and you walked away going, cool. Yeah, except for Leonard Nimoy. I think the fact that he was super nice and the fact that he's Leonard Nimoy trumps all of this because he is uh, he was quite the guy. That's true. Well, I, I think that wraps us up for our chat with Roger our look at the Bourne identity once again. I mean, a couple of things just to note, I think, before we wrap up. Firstly, this is our, I suppose, second foray into the world of TV movies. The first being our Harry Palmer TV movies. Yeah, that's right. We've done some TV pilots. Uh, like, for example, that Charlie's Angels pilot we talked about was the length of a you know TV movie. But yeah. And we did talk about, I think, the True Lies TV episode that came out as well. Yeah, we've done a few TV shows here or there. Yeah, I mean, the the general idea is we just stick to movies. But I think there are a few special TV movies out there that we will probably find time for. I know, like, the Smiley's people, the George Smiley stuff is is very highly regarded in spy movie circles. So I think we probably will try and make time for that at some point. Mm -hmm. And the original version of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, again, that often gets referenced when we ask people who come on the show their favorite spy movies. They'll say that, even though it was a TV show. 
I think we'll probably make time for that. But what I'm keen to know is, is from you all, are there other TV movies in the spy genre that I haven't mentioned there that you think we should take a look at? And Cam and I will uh, you know, take that under consideration, maybe add it to our master list. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I mean, we are going to look in the future as well at the Man From U.N.C.L.E. Uh, films, which were televised in some parts and then theatrical in others. Yeah, so it kind of walks the line there. And the other thing to maybe note is, I know we did our Jason Bourne roundtable like a year and a half ago, maybe at this point. Um, and that was to us probably the last time we talked about Bourne. Obviously, we found a bit more time to talk about Jason Bourne this year, but this probably marks the end. Uh, never say never. Never say never. That's true. That's true. There could be a sixth film. You never know. I'd like to go back to Bourne. I think he's a very interesting character. I think he's a very rich character. I would maybe like to see it rebooted at some point. Oh, it will happen uh, for sure. I think they're just going to need to find a new angle, but I think Jason Bourne will return. What's the new angle? Is it like J.C. Bourne? Jacqueline Bourne? Um, I... Jane Bourne. Jane don't... Bourne. I don't know what it could be. Like, Here's the thing. There's so many books... Uh, Robert yeah. Ludlum only wrote so many before, you know, another author took over. But like, there's so many stories there that completely diverge from what the stories that we saw in the Matt Damon series. So I think you could even just like reboot and start somewhere in the middle of those stories and just go on from there. Or alternatively, yeah, you know, we're living in this in a time where film companies like to go back to their lesser works and try and make them better. Yeah. Seems to be happening in a lot of like the Marvel films that they're referencing the Incredible Hulk now, mm -hmm. which is strange. So maybe you get a Matt Damon, Jeremy Renner, sixth Bourne film, put them both together and sort of redeemed legacy. I think Matt Damon said no to that. He was like, I'm not doing a movie with Aaron Cross in it. But here's another thing. People would have said when Sean Connery was retiring his Bond, well, you can't do it. Like that was a definitive Bond. And I think we say that now because Matt Damon is our definitive Jason Bourne. But mm -hmm. uh, Bond's had a few other eras, and I think Bourne will likely wind up in the same scenario. It's just going to take maybe a little longer between reinventions than Bond has had. Well, there you go. It proves it's all still to play for. But that was our look at 1988's TV version of the Bourne identity. It's been great to go back to the world of Jason Bourne. But Cam, the question goes to you. So what are we talking about next week? Yes, we are continuing with a different franchise. We're going to wrap up the Mechanic franchise with 2011's The Mechanic Resurrection, starring Jason Statham. Yeah, it's about time we say goodbye to Arthur Bishop. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week as we tackle The Mechanic Resurrection. And if you like what you heard on this interview, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you are listening to this podcast. And if you don't already, make sure you hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with all of the latest spy jinx. If you don't already, please make sure you follow us on social media discreetly, of course, at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next time, listeners, Cam and I are going to go and try and open the door for David Lean. Yeah.